Hey there, listeners. Just a content warning for Kirsten's segment later on in the episode. There are some references to sexual assault. Hello, good evening, or whatever time you're listening to this. You're listening to the Review Squared on Blaze Radio and BlazeRadioOnline.com. What a week it has been, and we can't wait to tell you more about it. I'm Gideon Karyuki. I'm John Brown. I'm Ethan Pelland. I'm Kirsten Dorman. I'm Alejandro de la Cedra. And I'm Haley Smilo. And have we got a show for you this week? I will be bringing us in tonight talking about the Arizona State Legislature. Uh, We're just doing a brief roundup on what's happening down there, given for those of you who aren't as familiar with Arizona, the state legislature here has a a normally about a 100-day session from January to April. So a lot of things happening in that short window toward the beginning of the year. So first off on the legislative roundup today, the state Senate is moving towards holding the entire Maricopa County Board of Supervisors in contempt. According to the Arizona Republic, due to the Maricopa supervisors not letting the state Senate hand over or let them look at the ballots cast in the 2020 election for an audit they're conducting, they're planning to do this. The supervisors say the law does not allow them to hand over the ballots, but the state Senate disagrees and wants to hold them in contempt, marking the first time in decades this move has been done. This resolution is due to be voted on Monday, which is the 8th. So the rationale for this is to answer concerns made about the general election. It should be noted most of those concerns are in fact unfounded conspiracy theories. And the state Senate was exploring subcontracting Allied Security Operations Group to conduct the audit, which has connections to the Trump campaign efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Moving right along, there's also an attempt to expand private school vouchers once again. Uh, For those of you who might not know or don't remember, in 2018, voters rejected a voucher a universal voucher expansion attempt in a landslide, but the legislature has other ideas. There are three different bills on the docket. One is Senate Bill 1452, which would allow any student attending a Title I, (coughs) excuse me, which would allow any student attending a Title I school to have a um, empowerment scholarship account voucher which would allow, which would give their parents money, the uh, parent of the kid money to go attend a private school. That would, because of how many Title I schools there are in this state, that would give an estimated 65 to 70% of all students in the state being eligible to take funds to spend on private education. Uh, This is all according to the Arizona Republic. Another one of these is Senate Bill 1513, which would allow children of veterans, first responders, and other health professionals uh, to use these vouchers. And lastly, House Bill 2503, allowing uh, children who are victims of various crimes to also 
take out empowerment scholarship account. Um, and this doesn't um, include uh, kids who have been bullied. Um, right now, for those who aren't familiar with uh, empowerment scholarship accounts, um, you can only get them in Arizona currently if, if you're under six narrow categories. Um, and if you do qualify, if a student qualifies, they get 90% of the funding that would have gone to their school districts. Uh, they're loaded onto a debit card and then the parents can go spend it on private school tuition. They've had problems in the past. Um, there has been multiple repeated questions over uh, fraud, misspending, lack of oversight and all kinds of problems. Currently at the moment, there are 9,700 ESA accounts, also according to the Republic. Lastly, uh, as I end this roundup, both houses of the legislature passed a bill banning discrimination of pregnant women at the state level by adding it to the Arizona Civil Rights Act, according to KOLD News 13. Governor Duck Ducey signed the bill HB 2045 into law on Thursday, the 4th of February, which is actually the first bill to be signed into law this year. This bill will allow the state to investigate and prosecute employment discrimination against pregnant women, which I should note is already illegal at the federal level. This merely makes it a state level crime too. And that is it for the this week's episode of the state legislative roundup on the Review Squared um, and my little segment that you will hear more from because folks, there's a lot of things happening at the state capitol. Um, short session. A lot of stuff to do, a lot of state problems to address. Anyhow, I'm going to bring it out to the panel. So between all three stories I've talked about, from pregnancy discrimination to vouchers to holding the entire Board of Supervisors in Maricopa County under criminal contempt, what is everyone's thoughts on any of those stories? I... Oh, Alejandro, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, first, I can speak on the vouchers. I'd never received a voucher. I don't, I don't, was not aware of them in high school, but I have um, interviewed and spoken to people within Save Our Schools Arizona, which for those people who don't live in Arizona, you probably don't know who they are. They're like a very, very like staunch um, teacher-led, teacher-focused organization, basically like trying to protect teachers in Arizona and um, it's hard. I would say it's hard to just label them as like a a a sideless organization, but that's not really true because they're pretty like um, against most state legislature things. So I just want to kind of like give that context from like a teacher's perspective. So a lot of the people in those organizations are against like ESA vouchers, and like they've been like fighting for years about it. So. Um, definitely expect some pushback from um, organizations like Save Our Schools and uh, people associated with it because they've been a pretty powerful force in this state, I think. Yeah, I just want to say really quick, as to Save Our Schools, um, they were the ones that got 305 on the ballot. The kind of background of the, the, to those of you who, once again, who might not know, the background of 305 is that the state legislature passed a bill basically doing universal school vouchers, expanding the ESA program to all Arizona students. And they got enough signatures to force a referendum on it. Um, 
Save Our Schools was actually formed to oppose school vouchers first and foremost. And yes, yeah, there will be a fight over this, no doubt. Yeah, um, and, and <laughs> I just am sort of slowly listening. Uh, just what's been happening over the last um, few weeks with our, with our uh, Arizona uh, Republican Party. And that the the board also is headed by Jack Sellers, and and also includes Bill Gates. I mean, they're essentially trying to take like the few remaining generally popular and not um, not like extreme extremely um, reactionary people within the Arizona GOP and just forcing them out. I I mean, if they bring, I I just don't see like are so they want to they want to seize. They want to gain access to the ballots, which the which the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors has made very clear multiple times they cannot give access to because it's illegal under Arizona state law. And what they're going to charge them with the criminal contempt because they won't they won't accept the frivolous lawsuits. I, it's just so short sighted this part that like the state GOP is just like taking basically any remaining serious individuals within their party and forcing them out. I mean, after this, how, I mean, I'm sure that Jack Sellers and Bill Gates are going to want to stay in the GOP, are still going to try to stay in the GOP, but they're like fracturing any relationship or any standing they have left with those members of the party. And just rapidly, like, I mean, this like over the last month has just been like constant, um, just Condit, like the 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 resolutions we've talked about before, the the censuring of multiple people within the party, and it's just rapid, just incredibly quick. Each week, a new sort of thing that they're doing. Yeah. Um. As for that, like it's very bizarre in my view what they're doing it's not surprising i'm not going to pretend i'm surprised by any of this uh, anyone who's been paying attention to the arizona gop could have seen this coming from miles and miles away this has been a long time coming but um yeah to see it happening though is still kind of wild and like the contempt resolutions actually sponsored by the entire state senate republican caucus it had to because of it yeah, oh, yes. it, it had to because if it, if they all didn't if they all didn't sign onto it, they wouldn't have passed because it would have been fifteen fifteen, which means that there wasn't a single state senator who either had the guts or the will to to make a stand and say I'm not going to go along with which which is actually I'm rather surprised about because I, I know and I understand that the that the GOP structure is is in my at least my opinion very decentralized and so it's rather difficult at times for the national GOP to control how things are going, i.e. Hawaii GOP, deciding to make posts in support of QAnon. But like, I would think that some of the national GOP would be like trying, or I don't know what's going on, maybe they just can't, but they would be trying to to stop what's going on with our state GOP because regardless of like your opinion, I, I don't think this is good at all for our state and it's definitely not good for their electoral prospects. Yeah, it's a bunch of weird stuff. And um, actually, I'm going to correct you on one point. They have not passed mm -hmm. it as of this moment. We're oh, recording. They, they have not. It is 
due to be voted on on Monday the 8th. Um, but it is co-sponsored by the entire state Senate, uh, Republican state Senate caucus, all 16 of them. So that is kind of, it is probably going to pass as of the moment things can and might change, but probably not too, who knows? Um, yeah, very wild what we're watching here. Also going after two Republicans who barely won in 2020. Exactly. Like, I mean- Sellers and Gates on the board, for those of you who might not be familiar with local politics, Sellers and Gates almost lost their re-elections to the Board of Supervisors, to Democrats, which would have flipped the Board of Supervisors to Democrat-controlled. Sellers was extremely close. I, from what I remember, it was, it was, I think it was like, I don't remember if it was a few hundred or a few thousand, but he was very close to losing to, to Hodge. Yeah, it was one of the closest races in the entire state in 2020, way closer than the presidential election was, and that was a squeaker. Um, Anyhow, that's all I have to say. If there's anything else anyone has to say, no, there is not. I will hand it off to John. Thanks. Thanks, Gideon. My story this week is about a South Florida grocery store who literally just did not take the mask mandate that has been in order and recommended by the CDC. So a video taken was taken by, I'm sorry, a video was taken by NBC's Sam Brock that shows um, just customers and employees not wearing a mask. And um, where this store is located in Naples, Florida, it's primarily a retirement community. And the store sign outside cites medical exemptions, medical exemptions for not wearing a mask. And obviously since Naples is a retirement community and there's a lot of elderly people there, you would think they'd be wearing masks. But no, the video caught, there was one aisle where um, uh, the cashier and the customer were like leaning in together talking with no mask in sight. And this video that went viral on social media, um, it really shows how people are not following the mask. Not just here in South, or not just in South Florida, but across the country too. And we obviously have other countries who are going back to normal and yes, I know they're smaller than our country, but they also follow the mask mandates as well. So I want to get the panel's thoughts on um, what they think about all of this and why people aren't following the mask mandate because it's just putting on a mask. See, it's just a piece of cloth and you wear it and then you protect yourself and the people you love and the people you don't love, but you know, it's still important. But so like, you know, it, of all the things, of all the things, this is the mass, the opposition and the refusal to mask wearing has been the most unbelievable, like just the most ridiculous one. I have very much so understood opposition to stay at home orders or to the certain restrictions on businesses because that affects people's livelihoods, that affects, and that that is like a, a actual limitation on your freedom uh, on or at least some of 
whereas the mask wearing is just a simple request and it's not as if like uh, it really is a, a simple request and i think another big part of this equation is a big theme let's say of the past year or so which has been misinformation especially within the past year or so i mean i've known people in my personal life who were genuinely concerned about the idea that wearing a mask would trap the CO2 in, in your mask and so that you would breathe in your own carbon dioxide too much and that it wouldn't allow oxygen in, which is a fundamental misunderstanding of the way that that works. But so many people believe it so wholeheartedly, I think because they don't know any better. I, I mean, I don't know, right? It's it's hard to say. Yeah, and no, what you're saying definitely makes sense. And and this is sidetracking a little bit, but anyone who says the, oh, you're a, just a social reject because you don't want to, you just don't want to go to this party or like when someone is calling out a party. Um, actually, no, this has to do with wearing a mask because it's directly correlated. And the people who say 99% survival rate and oh, you're just a social reject. Okay, we're literally in a global pandemic. And I, I can't say this on air, but I have so many things I want to say that is just, and unfortunately, I've seen it at our school on social media apps such as TikTok and you're just posting. First of all, I don't even know why you'd be posting like your party on TikTok because you know you're just going to get called out and I'll probably get sent to the deans. Um, who knows if they do something about it? I, I'm not sure. I'm sure they've done a bunch of citations and suspensions, but I just, if you're going to make comments like 99% survival rate and you're just a social reject in a pandemic, you're, you just don't understand how many lives you're putting in danger. I get it if it's like three people, but like this is big parties that are going on, that there's videos circulating on social media. I'm sure everyone here has seen a party going on on some social media platform, and it's just, just those two comments are the ones that just really just, what's the word? They make me mad because you're not a social reject for not going out to a party in the middle of a pandemic and endangering yourself and the well-being of other people. And just the 99% survival rate thing, I just, I, I don't want to get started on that. Right. And I think, John, I think you're absolutely right in the vein that there is an element of selfishness here, isn't there? There's an element of this self-importance where a person's personal comfort and social needs that they can't fathom filling any other way but gathering in large groups without masks on somehow takes precedent over other people's lives. You know, I personally would really like to see the same people who make comments like this say that to somebody who has had a loved one die of COVID. 
I would love to see them say that to somebody who works in the medical field and sees the effects of this pandemic every day or somebody who's lost their job or somebody who's facing eviction because of this great degree of selfishness that we're seeing. And your comment about parties also reminded me of a recent piece of news, Nikita Dragon, who is a fairly prominent influencer, just recently had a big birthday party and nobody at that event was wearing masks. And there were claims that everybody was tested at the door, et cetera, et cetera. But really that's not enough. Yeah. You know what? It's not enough. Yeah. No, it doesn't matter if you're tested at the door, like seriously, like you still shouldn't be doing it. Like it's just not a justification. It's like, and there's video of her over um, the holidays when she was in an elevator with, I don't know, there was a lot of people, it was crowded. It was a video of her in, in an elevator and she was not wearing a mask. And again, you have these repeat offenders in Hollywood who just don't wear a mask. And unfortunately, it's not just Nikita Dragon, um, well, who don't wear a mask and throw parties. And it really goes again to the party scene that, you know, you just, I mean, I just, they would just go on platforms and it's not just Nikita. Like they go on their platforms, like many celebrities and say, oh, this is a time where we should stay inside and, um, and not go out and not spread COVID. But you know, here, um, another example to Nikita Dragon, um, I hate to keep rambling on, but um, there was a healthcare worker in San Diego. He's a nurse. His name is Jake Grez. He's an Instagram influencer. And he got caught traveling to Mexico over um, over the holidays. Sorry, I was losing my train of thought. And um, an account noticed. And he got called out for it. He had to delete his Instagram and it just, it just showed how a healthcare worker working in a hospital is going to travel to a hotspot over the holidays while COVID is at one of its worst peaks. And one of the comments he put on his Instagram was, I think if you take all the right precautions um, and you get tested regularly, we, he, he said the Obamas went to Hawaii over break or over the holidays, so it shouldn't be a problem. And I think if you're a nurse working in the healthcare industry and you're justifying your vacation to Mexico during one of the biggest hot, during one of the biggest peaks of COVID by saying, if you take the right precautions and you get tested regularly, I don't think you should be working in the healthcare industry. Just my take. Um, We do have to move on, but I do want to say something really fast. Um, I'm going to be uh, the panel contrarian today, not against any points you're saying, Um, um, just in terms of the broader conversation around COVID. um, I'm not being a dumb contrarian, I promise. Um, So everything you all said is correct. Like People do need to take some responsibility. On the other hand, the primary reason why 
Like, let's not pretend that the primary reason why things are shooting up so high is just the complete irresponsibility of our leadership. Like, Matt, like, don't get me wrong. This mass stuff contributes a whole lot. Like, we could probably reduce our, our COVID rates a significant bunch, but we can't get rid of all of it without a lot of collective action. Right. And our leaders, no, our leaders have failed at all levels. Governors, mayors, um, Congress, White House. Yeah. You could argue a lot of like quote unquote anti-mask sentiment has actually leaked down from the top down. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't help. Like it doesn't help that the, uh, that the scientists uh, like Fauci and company um, decided to do a whole, we're not going to tell you the truth about masks. And that does not, that's not a good thing. We're a very low trust society. And this, that was obvious to anyone who was paying attention long before COVID. And if you start the pandemic off, not being honest and transparent, that creates problems. So like just a whole bunch of failures from everybody that kind of brought us to this point. So yes, part of it is an individual action problem, but a lot of it is a collective action problem. It's fundamentally a collective action problem. If you look at the kind of stuff like New Zealand had to do to get yeah. to like no co- like I now is that even possible for us is a question that we don't have the time for, but like to get to extremely low COVID rates, like there's a lot of collective action that has to happen. And we didn't do it because um, to put it quite bluntly, our leaders suck. Yeah, that's not a partisan thing. No, they all they're all horrible folks. We we are led by very bad people. And um, <laughs> that's all I'm going to say about. Yeah, thanks, Gideon. Um, yeah, sorry for rambling on, you know, you know how we all feel about this topic. Um, a year ago, I would say, what are you talking about? But here we are. Um, Ethan? All right. Uh, thank you, John. My story for tonight is about the coup that took place in Myanmar this Monday. I'm sure that some of our listeners uh, saw some, some headlines, but I wanted to give first a sort of a quick timeline of um, just the events that took place this week. And then I will talk a little bit about um, what the likely or possible um, paths forward are for Myanmar and what the impacts of the present situation are. So uh, first, I think the most important um, event uh, in understanding what took place on Monday was the legislative elections that took place last year in which Myanmar's National League for Democracy, which was the ruling government before uh, Monday, which was just overthrown, won the legislative elections by a massive margin, securing 60% of seats in both houses. However, this Monday, the Myanmar military launched a coup, arresting Suu Kyi, the leader of the NLD, which is the National League for Democracy, Myanmar's president, and all the NLD's leadership. Um, on Wednesday, China and Russia vetoed a resolution by the UN Security Council, which was directly condemning the action. But the G7, which is made up of Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States, announced a separate resolution calling on the military to back down and to safeguard the democratic institutions of Myanmar. In response, Myanmar's military has declared a national emergency for one year, shutting down all access to social media and charging most of the National League for Democracy with minor crimes. These charges include a charge on the president for legal gathering with supporters and a charge against Sushi for legally importing. I'm not joking, walkie-talkies. Now, why are why is the military charging them with what, you know, they've just done a coup and apparently the rationale the president 
or the, I mean the chairman, illegally imported walkie-talkies. The reason why is because for many years, the military has been trying to find, had, and since Su Chi's, um, and just, I wanted to actually, first probably should give a little bit of background about who Su Chi is. Um, she is the most publicly visible figure in Myanmar's pro-democracy movement. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1991, and she has been an activist and a leader of the National, of the National League for Democracy for decades. Now, the reason why they are charging her with illegally importing walkie-talkies is because if they can find basically any crime which they can which they can charge her with and get her convicted, you cannot run or be a member of Myanmar's Myanmar's legislature without with a criminal record. So any any criminal record, you cannot be a member of the legislature, which would mean they would finally achieve their goal of sidelining her, which they have not been able to achieve through elections because simply put, Myanmar's military has not been able to successfully rig them due to international observers. So that sort of provides the uh, um, why there are these like really frivolous charges. Now, Myanmar's military's basis for the intervention is that they allege widespread fraud in the election. However, there were many international organizations and observers which were present and certified the election, calling it the most secure and valid election Myanmar has ever held in its history. So what now that you sort of have a timeline of the events that have taken place, um, what, what are the impacts? What, what does this mean for Myanmar's future? First, um, this, and I fear, means a reinflaming of Myanmar's ongoing civil conflicts. If you have spent, uh, if you have spent time looking or reading about Myanmar's history before, um, there is a long and storied, many long and storied ethnic conflicts. There are a large proportion of Christian and Muslim minorities living in Myanmar, primarily in undeveloped, and, um, and this sort of reflects Myanmar's um, inequality. But the center of Myanmar, uh, which is primarily urban, has primarily the Bamar ethnic group, which is where uh, Myanmar or got its original name, Burma. This ethnic group has largely been in power and controlled Myanmar's history. But these other ethnic groups, which live in primarily rural border, border states, have long faced discrimination, especially this especially inflamed after Myanmar's independence. And so there's been decades long insurgencies, which culminated in the genocide that took place in Myanmar in 2017, in which 24,000 Muslim minorities, commonly known as Rohingya in Myanmar, were killed by the Myanmar military, and 860,000 were displaced into, into neighboring Bangladesh. Almost none of those 860,000 have been able to resettle. And now, even though, um, and this is really why um, the NLD is, is rather weak now on the international stage is because Suu Kyi went to the, uh, the Hague, to the International Criminal Court to publicly defend Myanmar's actions. And this really shows, in my opinion, how far the NLD went to try to compromise and to try to work with the military. And despite all these attempts, despite going and taking her public, her, her international reputation and shattering it, to defend the military, it, it wasn't enough. And so this, I also think, will mean a return to Myanmar's isolation, which it faced for 60 years after its independence, uh, very little contact with the outside world, 
little trade relations, little international investment, and a very um, a dependency on China. Because China throughout sort of this period has been the only country that has defended them. And of course, in this, this, uh, this week's events, China has really been the only country that has stood by Myanmar's military. So that's pretty much the situation. Um, there's been a variety, and the reason why I say that this is why I think the violence will get worse is because the, the civilian government was very instrumental in getting peace deals signed with some of these, these uh, militant groups and insurgent groups throughout, throughout Myanmar. And the military has always relied on violence. Um, mass internment, concentration camps, and their, their campaign against Rohingya wasn't just killing them. They basically flattened and destroyed two-thirds of their, their homes, essentially trying to remove them entirely from the country. And, then, and their vision and what Myanmar's military thinks of other countries is very exclusionary. They believe that everyone should be Bamar and that there's really no place for any of the, for any Christians, for Muslims, for anyone who's not Buddhist and who is not uh, part of the dominant ethnic group. And so now that there's no really control over them, what little there was before is now gone. And so I, I, I think we're gonna see an uptick in violence, more refugees, which is going to be um, causing a lot of issues for Bangladesh, which is already also facing an influx of, of Muslim refugees from India. And so that's sort of the laydown of the situation in Myanmar. Um, the, the US and Biden administration has said that they'll, they're going to see what um, sanctions or attempts they can do in order to try to prevent um, the solidification of military control. But I think like what happened in Mali, uh, the, the military is going to hold on to power despite international attempts to intervene. What a bummer. Um, yeah, between Suchi uh, basically continuing the long tradition of every politician who wins the Nobel Peace Prize um, doing awful things. And yes, I said every, and I stand by that stance. Don't try to give me but so-and-so. I'm not going to name names on on air, but every single politician who's gotten it has gone on to do really awful things. And Suchi just continued that record. And yeah, so between that and the whole, you know, the, the, the military is now back in the driver's seat. Um, Myanmar doesn't seem to be in a great place. Uh, not at all. Uh, the, the government kind of did a genocide. Like, Guys, that's uh, uh, yeah, that's not a, that's not being in a good place if there ever was one. Uh, I mean, I we've even started seeing on social media hashtags like Save Myanmar, things like that. Been seeing information come out about basically the the phones, the TV, the internet, basically any way they have to reach out and cry out for help from within the country as citizens has been cut off so far. And really it's been people who are, I, I saw one TikTok user earlier today who is studying in the UK, but is from Myanmar pleading with people, please like talk about this. Um, and what I'm curious to know from you guys is 
do you think people aren't talking about this as much because it's such a complicated, lesser known situation to your average person here in say America? Well, the, uh, as I said, Myanmar's, um, as you said, there's very little contact. There still is very little contact with the outside world. So unless you are like an, unless you are a study, unless you've like studied or you have spent time like taking courses and learning about Myanmar's history, um, basically what is maybe known in public uh, is Suchi herself, because she was a very inter- she was a very publicly and internationally known figure, which is why it's such a tragedy that she her reputation has been destroyed. Because there's really no one to replace her with. There's no one that could possibly in Myanmar that could really be a household name like she was, or as close to household name as she was. And so, in in order to and also like so like as I said, the the way the country has developed and the the access to the outside world has made to where people don't really know very much about their minority groups. They don't hear their stories. They, they live in very cut off from, from contact from, and so you, you, that's why you sort of have these situations with what happened and to the Rohingya just suddenly develop despite, and, and then become known despite decades of lead up. And also uh, one last thing I forgot to say was the individual who was res- most responsible and in charge of the Myanmar military operations against the Rohingya is now the leader, is now the uh, interim uh, head of state. Yeah, interim head of state. Yeah, we, we, we've we seen this script now and again, yes. interim meaning until I say so. Um, and not to generalize, but this is actually, I and you, you might even see, you might even see a transition back to elections, but the elections will not be real. The elections will be like, in a sense, it's like with, with Thailand and with Egypt and many of these sort of like hybrid authoritarian states where the military every so often will come in, take out the elected, remove the elected government from power saying we're doing a transition. They do do a transition, but then what it basically happens is, is there's the elections happen, but you know, just conveniently 98% of the population votes for, you know, the dictator. <laughs> it's like in Egypt where Al-Sisi win, wins against like a random guy wins with 98% of the vote in Egypt. I mean, sure, they're like, they have elections, but they're not really elections. Yeah, I've heard it called competitive authoritarianism yes, that's, before. That's, uh... So yeah, so um, I just wanted to sort of give a rundown and attempt to give sort of a timeline because I've seen some talk about it, but um, also not enough about what it means for the minority populations. All right, and with uh, that, I'm gonna hand it off to Kirsten for her uh, segment. All right, thanks, Ethan, and thanks again for that fantastic discussion. So another week, another case to bring to the panel and to you, our listeners. And this time, we're heading down to Boynton Beach, Florida, to talk about a cold case that has resurfaced because the police department has released a six-part podcast series, and the victim's remaining family is still talking about it in hopes that someone who knows something will step forward. After all, someone always knows something, whether they realize it or not, whether they're scared to speak up, or whether they don't think that what they noticed that day really matters, someone always knows something. 
And in this case, someone knows what happened to Victoria Rose Miller back in 1996. The call to 911 came in at 11.53 a.m. on May 11th that year. Victoria, who went by Vicky, had been found in some brush behind the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge by a horseback rider. Vicky had died of blunt force trauma. Her throat had been cut and she had unfortunately been raped. Her body was left nude except for a pair of tennis shoes on her feet. Her sister, Alexis Miller, who was eight at the time, told People Magazine in an article published just this week, quote, her death seems to be that defining moment where my memories really began. I have two daughters of my own and I try not to be overprotective, but that shadow of my sister and what happened to her is always present. According to reporting by Stephanie Valderrama for 12 News, Vicky was last seen leaving a party at Bryant Park in Lake Worth Beach two days before her death. That same night, her mother reported her missing after not hearing from her daughter in almost a month. Coincidentally, it was that same day that Vicky was murdered, according to a medical examiner's report. Max Ann Miller, an intern at the Boynton Beach Police Department, hosts the podcast Rosebud and spent almost nine months compiling information for it. According to Rosebud's first episode, the Boynton Beach Police Department's murder cases went from one in 1995 to 10 the following year. This case being one of few from that year that remains unsolved amongst the police department. The documentary itself, or the podcast itself, rather, takes a look at Vicky's childhood, mental health, and relationships. Shortly after she turned 16, Vicky discovered that she was pregnant with a daughter. She would be the mother of two girls by the time she was 17 and did her best despite all of her other struggles to support them, even giving one up for adoption, which was a choice that appears to have been extremely hard on her. Miller's effort to show who Vicky was and what she went through throughout her 18 years of life is apparent, at least in my eyes and in comparison to ways other cases have been covered. As she states in Rosebud's third episode, Walking Fire, Vicky was forced to grow up fast to provide for her daughter. She had to make tough decisions in her teens, but Vicky was working through her hardships to make something of herself. She never got the chance to fully blossom into her full potential because someone didn't want to see what she could become. Other acquaintances and friends were given the opportunity to get sober, have healthy, re loving relationships, have families, and grow through their trauma, but Vicky was never given that chance. 18 short, trying years on this planet and still no justice 25 years later. If you or anyone you know might have any information about what happened to Vicki, you can anonymously call in tips to Palm Beach County Crime Stoppers at 1-800-458-TIPS or 1-800-458-8477, or you can reach the Boynton Police Department at J at BFFLUS. That's G-L-E-I-C-H-E-R-J at BF bbfl.us. So I want to open it up to the panel and talk a little bit more broadly about the idea that 
podcasts have now become, and this is discussed in the People magazine article that her sister is quoted in, the idea that true crime podcasts have now kind of become, and documentaries and things like that, have kind of become the wanted posters and news newspaper updates of the 21st century. I would agree with that assessment. In a lot of ways, they are, uh, thanks to a lot of people uh, uh, behind, like putting research into this and trying to look into old cases or case or true crime cases that just happened. A, a lot of awareness has been brought up of a lot of them, like a lot of different cases. And hopefully, now I don't know, now I'm not as familiar with the true crime genre, but I'm, but I, I'm sure at least has helped, at least helped in a couple cases, at least get some tips that would lead to something. Right. Yeah, I, I and, think it's actually, oh, sorry. <laughs> no, all good. And I just meant to say like, there is some benefit, but no significant, like I've never heard of a case being solved because of a podcast yet. Maybe that'll be this one, maybe not, but Ethan. Oh, I was going to say, I, I agree. Like, I think the most apt comparison probably would be, well, I think of it's it's how, how to put it. But most of true crime is about things that have happened long ago in the past that were unsolved. So I, I wonder, I mean, it's probably most comparable probably to, to newspaper stories about ongoing, like not solved cases that would grip sort of national attention. But those would typically be like nationwide, sort of like on like each night on um, on cable television, that would be the leading story, and then in all the large newspapers, that would be on the front page. It's interesting now how true crime is very widespread, but it's also very, um, at least from my understanding, very insular too. Absolutely, I would I would tend to agree with that. Also, largely for the reason that. In, in the way that true crime has been so insular and a lot of people in the community, a lot of content creators have been kind of working against this and working to remedy this. Cases that aren't picked up by, th by outlets like cable TV have gotten the chance and gotten the platform to be heard through things like podcasts, YouTube videos have been a big deal. There's been a great surgence of content on TikTok for true crime. And that, as someone who's followed just the true crime genre or community for a while now, that's been really encouraging to see, especially in cases like Dolce Alvarez, who would not have gotten as much coverage as, I, as she has, if not, I believe, for people on the internet who saw this case and were just so concerned and knew that unfortunately to a lot of big stations, this isn't a story that they feel like will sell. So all we can hope for now is, again, somebody knows something. And if you even think you know something, come forward. And that's not just for this case.
So I'm going to hand it off. Thank you guys for listening. Oh, sorry. Um, thanks. Um, so I'm just going to read a little story about um, the what the late musician Sophie meant to me. So I'm just going to go for it. Um, I didn't start really listening to music and intensely until uh, 2017. Although 2017 was a whirlwind year for me, my discovery of truly loving music was a bright spot that year. One artist that I became extremely enamored by was Charlie XCX. Her Vroom Vroom EP showed me that music that I had never heard before, music that I thought was cool. I had never heard sounds so loud and striking while still being so pop. The producer behind those sounds was Sophie. Unfortunately, Sophie tragically passed away in an accident on January 30th. When I think about Sophie, I think of a trailblazer and an innovator. Sophie wanted to push the boundaries of pop music and to stretch the sound of pop music, eventually changing the core of what it was and what it could be. Sophie shaped my music taste. The sound that she cultivated ended up being the music that I actively seek out. The amazing thing about this is that I never had to chase Sophie's sound because her influence reached every corner of pop. Pop music would not sound the way it does today if it weren't for Sophie. I'm so grateful that I was able to hear her ideas so vividly translated through her production and solo music. Any and every sound that Sophie could think of, she made it possible. Sophie made it possible for me to fall in love with pop music. I wouldn't be pursuing a career as a music journalist without Sophie. Anytime I think about her tremendous talent, I can't comprehend it. Sophie was everywhere. She was making her own music, producing for others, and her names were in the mouth, her name was in the mouths of the entire music industry. Most importantly, Sophie was loved. Sophie worked with artists ranging from Madonna, Rihanna, Charlie XCX, and Vince Staples, all the way down to more emerging artists like Quaidash, Shy Girl, and Let's See Grandma. Several of those artists shared what Sophie meant to them through social media. In her Twitter post, Charlie XCX wrote about Sophie saying, quote, it's impossible to summarize the journey I went on with Sophie. She later went on to say in the, she later went on in the post to say, quote, but for now, all I can say is that I will miss her terribly, her smile, her laugh, her dancing in the studio, her gentle, inquisitive voice, her cutting personality, her ability to command a room without even trying, her incredible vision in mind. Shy Girl wrote on her Twitter post saying, quote, a friend that I've never not been in awe of. It's so hard to believe I won't have any, I won't have more memories of her. Perhaps my favorite memory shared of Sophie was shared by rapper Vince Staples, who said in a tweet, quote, Sophie was different. You ain't never seen somebody in the studio smoking a cigarette in a leather bubble jacket, just making beats, not saying one word. I love the image of Sophie in the studio, truly just going about business as usual, all while pulling a look only she could do with the leather bubble jacket. I remember in junior year of high school, I had transferred back to my original school from freshman year and I was pretty miserable. The only thing that kept me going was the music playing in my earbuds between classes. One day in my stage production class, we weren't doing anything. Since we were all idle, I went on my phone and opened the YouTube app. While I was scrolling through the app, I saw a music video for a new Sophie song titled, It's Okay to Cry. I was so shocked because we hadn't gotten uh, I was shocked, but also excited to have new Sophie music. The track was nothing I expected it to be. Sophie was using her voice without it being pitched up or modified in any way. In It's Okay to Cry, Sophie sings in a soothing tone, reminding the listener that it is okay to cry. 
The song sounds like Sophie was talking to a close friend or a lover, caressing them and letting them know that they can be vulnerable with her, that it's okay to cry. While watching the music video, I could feel tears welling up in my eyes. I was really going through it at the time, and I didn't feel like there was anything that could make me feel better. Hearing Sophie's music at the time felt like a glimmer of hope, like someone personally making sure that I felt okay. I will forever be grateful to Sophie for making me feel comforted and joyful in that moment. Looking forward to the legacy of Sophie, I know her peers and fans will remember her fondly and continue to honor her. In Sophie's song, Immaterial, she sings excitedly, I can't be held down, I can't be held down. Those lines in particular stuck out to me because it was true. Sophie really couldn't be held down. Instead, she made a future for us. So I uh, just shared those words because she was like, meant a lot to me. And I know that like her, I'm like so happy that her impact is like permanent forever on music. So yeah, if no one else has any comments, I'll move it to Haley. Um, powerful words um, and an important person to recognize for the history of music and what she did for music. Anyhow, sports. So yes, the Super Bowl is happening on Sunday. And yes, if the Buccaneers win, then Tom Brady will probably be the best quarterback in the NFL. You can debate that later. I don't want to be a part of that discussion, but I don't want to talk about the Super Bowl like I said. Instead, I want to talk about stadiums and arenas and the effects they have on communities. On February 4th, Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, sent President Biden a letter committing all 30 NFL stadiums as COVID vaccination centers. Seven stadiums, including State Farm Stadium, which for anyone who doesn't know is the Cardinals Stadium, that stadium's already in action. Stadiums around the countries, are in the country, not countries, are being used in ways that they've never been used before. In the MLB Dodgers Stadium, Minute Maid Stadium, and City Field, among others, are also being used as vaccination sites. Dodger Stadium gives out roughly 12,000 shots a day, according to USA Today. Earlier this year, during election season, most arenas became polling locations, according to Forbes. Roughly 300,000 people voted in those arenas. That begs the question, is that because arenas are easily reachable, or is there something deeper there? Do stadiums lead to a feeling of comfort or community? In my mind, yeah, sports teams are a way for people to unify. So if sports can use their platform to allow people to take political action or get a vaccine for a global pandemic, then that's a good use for an arena. Almost maybe a better use than actually the athletic events themselves. Panel, any quick thoughts on the usage of an athletic arena for purposes that aren't athletics? You said it. I mean, there, there definitely are better ways than sweating all over each other to use these big spaces. And it, it is really encouraging to see some strides being made here. For sure. Also, oh, sorry. We should note um, that when like, we talk about State Farm Stadium, like cars are not going into the stadium, but rather the parking, the huge, huge parking lot around it, because you'll, you're gonna be hard pressed to find many spaces with this huge of a parking lot and just general space as you are with stadiums. So good thing, um, let's just get more people vaccinated. For sure, yeah. The more people we can get vaccinated, the better stadiums are using their parking lots to do it. 
fantastic. On that note, as we were talking about earlier, please wear a mask. Masks are very important. That's our leaving note today. As we went back, go all the way back to our episode where we were talking about Oregon getting a COVID case for like the first time ever. We told you to wash your hands and wear a mask. I'm going to tell you the same message today. Wash your hands, wear a mask, and stay safe. Please stay inside. Anyway, that's been the review tonight. Um, you can find us on Blaze Radio. I don't know Blaze Radio's website. I probably should, but I don't. Um, we are at 7 o'clock, and we have a Twitter and an Instagram review underscore squared. Thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great day, morning, night, evening, whatever time you're listening to this show. The song at the start of the episode is Dedicated to the Press by Betty Davis, and the music you hear is by Springtime. 